Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. My name is Simon Humphreys. So today we're delighted to have as our guest Andy Burnham. Andy was first elected as Mayor of Greater Manchester in May 2017 and was re-elected for a second term in May 2021. He's responsible for shaping the future of Greater Manchester and his priorities include building a London-styled integrated transport system, ending rough sleeping, transforming Greater Manchester into one of the greenest city regions in Europe and making Greater Manchester a greater place to grow up, get on and grow old. Before being elected, Andy was MP for Lee from 2001. In government, Andy has held ministerial posts at the Home Office, Department of Health and the Treasury. In 2008, he became Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport before returning to Health as Secretary of State in 2009. In opposition, Andy has served as Shadow Education Secretary, Shadow Health Secretary and Shadow Home Secretary. Andy lives in Lee, Greater Manchester, with his wife and three children. Andy, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. You're welcome. It's great to be on. So what I'd like to do is just set a bit of context first for what we're going to talk about. Uh, and then what we'll do is we've got a number of questions we'd like to fire at you and get your opinion, if that's okay. So change is constant. It's all around us in every aspect of our lives. In the past 10 years or so, consumerization and technology have had a huge impact on our home and work experiences. They've changed our behaviours, our preferences, shifted our expectations and opened our minds in terms of how we curate and live our lives. The COVID pandemic is a little bit behind us now, but it did result in self-reflection for a considerable number of people as to what they wanted from work and life. It exaggerated existing challenges and it offered new opportunities. We're now seeing more demand for hybrid working, for example, the rise of the gig economy. And all of this is having a knock-on impact on the sustainable pipeline of available talent with the right skills to support the changing workplace and the ability of organisations to retain that talent. In this episode, we'll be exploring how do we ensure that organisations are fit for today, but also fit for the future? We'll explore this from an organisational perspective, but also from the perspective of the provision of public services. What is the importance of developing existing and new skills, enabled by technology advances, to drive the execution of processes and delivery of services to citizens and the workforce? So that's given a bit of context, Andy. Let, let's maybe open this up. We've got a, an international and global audience, if you like. So maybe we just start with... a. Positioning, what's the Mayor of Manchester responsible for and, and what does success look like for you in your role? Well, as I said at the start, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, great to be able to explain more about what's going on in Manchester and Greater Manchester at the moment. So I'm the first elected mayor. I represent the 2.8 million uh, people who, who live here. We are fastest growing city in the UK in terms of our economy and uh, our population. We're a vibrant, pretty bright, vibrant place. And it's my job to manage some of the big issues, the strategic issues across the city region relating to policing, transport, housing, and increasingly moving into new fields like education and particularly technical education following the, uh, the devolution deal we signed with the government in 2023. So it's an exciting place to be right now. It's without doubt the best job in politics that I've had um, because when you're working in a 
place-based way as opposed to a sort of party-first way as a Westminster forces you to work. It's amazing what becomes possible when you're kind of working bottom-up on a principle that is, is a unifying principle, isn't it, about place and everybody cares about the place. And in a, a polarised time, I think English devolution, as sort of pioneered by Greater Manchester, is really beginning, I think, to deliver results. You've got two very strong advocates here. Yeah, I'm I'm born in Manchester, and, and Michael's obviously one of your citizens as well. So uh, we're, we're both very keen on, on observing what happens in Manchester. I think what we'd like to get your uh, perspective on then is is how the changes maybe in public expectations, which are constantly changing. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned the pandemic in the introduction, but I think they're always changing, whatever the circumstance is. But but how does that expectation change the public services and, and what people want from from you know the organisation? How do you manage those demands versus you know, getting the workforce able to deliver against those? Yeah, that can uh, be a real challenge because if you look at some of the essential uh, services like transport, they're nowhere near where they should be, um, and nowhere near as good as they are in London and the southeast and. People here rightly are frustrated about that. And I, I fully understand that frustration as somebody who lived here all my life and, you know, struggle like anybody to get get around. So I've been saying as mayor that I want to deliver a very different public transport system. And the thing with transport is you can't you can't just do that by waving a wand and it appears overnight. It takes time to build it. But we are on with building it. But it is just, you know, about taking people with you and making sure that they understand why it can't. It can't be dramatically different, um, you know, from one year to the next. We have taken the decision to put buses back under public control. That was um, a decision I took in 2021. So we are the first place in England uh, to see the return of regulated bus services. And that will continue throughout 2024 and will complete in January 2025. So I wish it could be quicker, uh, but but we're working on it. And I just have to obviously keep um, keep people with us on that journey. And we obviously saw a major decision taken down in, in London uh, about HS2. Uh, and, and that's going to have a significant impact on people coming into Manchester, but also going from Manchester to other regions. And I mean, that's that's a big decision, isn't it? And that's a big impact on, on Manchester population. Oh, well, it was it was a decision actually announced here. Um, it felt very much like uh, we were having our noses rubbed rubbed in it um, at the party conference last year. The prime minister, without speaking to us, basically ripped up a big promise that George Osborne made 10 years earlier when he announced the creation of a northern powerhouse. Boris Johnson reiterated that standing in front of Stevenson's rocket. So, you know, it was really hard uh, just to have all of that work torn up in our faces. And I, you know, when I say work, there's people in this city region who basically devoted their careers to... Uh, that whole question of designing a new high-speed network for the north of England. And we're left with a situation now where there's still money in the system to deliver new east-west connectivity across the north, and that's a good thing. But there's just no solution now for Manchester to Birmingham. And we heard last week somebody from HS2 saying that if the HS2 trains that go into Birmingham from London carry on on the West Coast mainline, they will be slower than existing West Coast mainline services and they will have fewer seats. And it's like, what? And that represents progress? I don't think so. So it's 
It's frustrating. I think in various moments in my time as mayor, during the debate I had with the government over Tier 3 in the pandemic, but also over HS2, there's just a default London centricity, a default attitude that kind of just thinks they can treat the north of England differently to they would treat London and the South East. And, you know, that is pretty ingrained. And it's something that, uh, you know, we, we, we are getting more successful at calling out but our calling out yet hasn't changed it any, to any great degree. So you're having to redeploy people then to, to put them onto different initiatives? Are you having to move them around? Are you having to change their day-to-day -day lives now with that big decision? Yes. So, you know, as I say, there have been people who've been working on this pretty much flat out since George Osborne first confirmed it. Um, you know, just Well, it was a decade ago. It was 2014 that he came to Manchester and promised a northern powerhouse. It would be HS2, HS3, he called it at the time, which would have been the northern west to east uh, railway. So, yeah, people have basically been working on all of that and now are having to be redeployed. To be fair, and I try and be fair in this job, the Prime Minister gave myself and the Mayor of Liverpool a role in designing the uh, leg of northern powerhouse rail that is west of Pennines, uh, so Liverpool through Warrington, Manchester Airport to Piccadilly, uh, and that represents a degree of progress. But it's still very, very frustrating when you just look at the state of, of everyday railway services here. It's, they're just nowhere near good enough. And the railway actually has just been damaging our economy for, for some time now. And so part of that backdrop of the change we're seeing, you know, th there will be decisions taken, but also I think the workplace is, is slightly changing a little bit, isn't it? We're seeing changes in terms of what the workforce expects, what's expected of the workforce. And here I'm talking about things like hybrid working. We're seeing skill shortages cropping up, uh, turnovers rising. What are your views on the, the impact of that? I mean, that must be hard to juggle with all the demands that are going on. You know, of course, you've got limited funding as well in terms of how to approach that. But and I'll frame that in the sense that it was, I think, 12 months ago or six to 12 months ago, we saw central government take an approach that everybody back to the office. You know, that, that, that's, the, that's the demand now. You're all going back to the office. Are you seeing something slightly differently? I think what we notice is it's not back to where we were pre-March 2020. I think Mondays are different in the city. More people, I think, work from home and so are Fridays. And that has kind of implications, good and bad, of course. I mean, it makes it easier to get around on those days and uh, it lowers congestion. But then the nighttime economy in Manchester say that Friday nights aren't the old Friday nights in, in Manchester. Now, some would say that might be a good thing because they were maybe a little rowdy uh, in the in the past. I can see Michael uh, laughing and nodding there. He's probably uh, had a few of those nights himself, I'm sure. Um, but... It is actually a different world, actually. It isn't the, the same as it was. And I think largely it's a positive in that we've moved quite quickly to a position where more people have more flexibility over their over their working week. And and I, I think that's a, a good thing. We do encourage people to come back in, but here at the Great Manchester Combined Authority, we don't operate a hard and fast kind of policy a, a, about that. I think generally people are all in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, less so on a Monday and Friday, but that's that's fine. It's about working out what kind of work you can do at home, isn't it? And what yeah. things need to be done in the office and just having a sophisticated take on, on, on all of that. 
Yeah, Michael, can you bring you in then? Yeah, just one last point before Michael comes in. Oh, I mean, sorry, yeah. One thing it does have is an implication for public transport uh, and the, the funding of public transport, given the numbers of passengers, have been down. But finally, I think we're getting back to a point now where we've recovered the pandemic, sort of hangover on that. And it's not necessarily that, as I said, we're still short of commuters on Monday and Friday, but the leisure market just seems to be booming, to be honest. And um, the shortfall in the working week is more than made up at the weekend. Andy, just building on Simon's question there, and you know we've got the aspect of the hybrid, but Simon and I have the privilege of working across many customers, different industries, and this issue around skill shortages. Now, I, I always go back to a TED talk that uh, was put together by Boston Consulting Group about the 2030 workforce crisis and how there's an aging workforce, the demographics are telling us we don't have the same amount of talent coming through. Are you seeing in the in the public sector space that there are issues around the availability of skills? Uh, are you experiencing, for example, any aspects where you, that you just don't have the right amount of people? Is that something that's coming up on your radar? Certainly is, Michael. Um, so it's very much the case that that mm. is an issue in health and care. For instance, I met a group of midwives recently who very much say that the demographics of midwifery are that there's a lot of people in the workforce who are at the sort of older age of the spectrum and moving more towards retirement, and it's creating real issues with regard to um, workforce continuity and yeah. service continuity. Um, back to transport, I think we've uh, experienced the kind of shortage of drivers being the, one of the main issues why train services are not where they should be. But that, that issue also relates to trams and buses as well. So I think there's a very big challenge, undoubtedly, and we have vacancies in, in a number of our, our key uh, sectors, and the digital and tech sector talk about you know the, the constant challenge of finding the, the people that they need. Yeah. However, there is a big solution on the way, and it's called the Greater Manchester Baccalaureate. So using the powers that we have through our latest devolution deal, we will become the first place in the country to create an employer-driven technical education system. And I, I emphasize the word system, you know, bringing, it's like, it's like with transport, you know, moving away from the fragmented arrangements of the past back towards a, a collaborative system that deals with the, um, the the big the big challenges that we've we've got. I mean, to put it simply, we want sectors to be able to articulate to the college system what they need in terms of yeah. numbers of T levels in various things. We need to give our young people visibility of those opportunities, and then build build from there. We also need to stop the domination of the university route within the education system, and that's what the Great Manchester Baccalaureate is is trying to do. So we have the English baccalaureate that leads to A-levels, UCAS University. That's a very well understood route and it works for those who want to go on it. And it's not about being anti-university, but it, it can't be right that we have an English baccalaureate with all of the folks on university and nothing for the two thirds of kids who, um, who don't go to university in Greater Manchester. So look out for the Greater Manchester baccalaureate. It launches in September. This is about two clear equal paths at 14 laid out for our for our young people t levels at 16 linked to the growing sectors of the greater manchester economy work placements provided by the most prestigious names in our economy we are on a real mission actually to um 
to raise aspirations across the city region and also then create a system that will fill those vacancies in the long run. That sounds a superb initiative. I mean, I, I did have a question around the ageing workforce, but I, I think that will help tremendously. I think what I'm interested in as well, though, is what do you think the interest level is like with the younger generation about a career in public services? Is that a, a population that are jumping at the chance to go into public services, do you think? Or are they more tempted towards other organisations? No, I think they are. I, I notice a difference, really, in this generation coming through. Uh, are they Gen Z? Is that right? Am I, am I showing I so. how I think how so. I am by saying that? But I think that's how people <laughs> would describe them. And my kids, I guess, are are members of it. Yeah, you know, when I speak to them and their friends and and their wider group, I, I what I see is a generation that doesn't see difference but celebrates diversity, is clear-eyed about the climate crisis, but also is very much about giving back and making a difference. I, I really do uh, find myself sort of having a lot of hope vested in this coming generation, and definitely, I I think the issue is not that they don't want to work in public services. I think the issue is do public services promote themselves properly to to young people? Yeah. And I think we need to create new pathways actually through our Greater Manchester Baccalaureate system to work in the NHS, for instance. You know, yeah. Yeah. How might you sort of come in as a care assistant or a healthcare assistant and then move to perhaps become a, a physio or, you know, um how might you progress to become a speech and language therapist? I think we definitely need to think very seriously about the mental health workforce. I think young people are very literate when it comes to the mental health pressures on people these days. And I think many of them would work in that in that area if we we think rethink pathways into into mental health. So no, I I, I think it's not their fault. I think it's ours really. We haven't um, made life simple and clear enough for them. We haven't laid the paths out in front of them. But we're going to fix that in Greater Manchester. Now, I suspect Gen Z also brings with it an, an expectation of the technology they'll be using, for example, inside the workplace. Um, we've seen this um, you know, recent emergence of artificial intelligence. You know, it's, it's all over the news. It's it's everywhere you look. Is that something that you're leaning into as, uh, uh, as, a, as a service to help people, as an, an enabler to help them do their job better? Certainly interested, but I would say in a very early early way of thinking about it. I, I'm a member of Michael Bloomberg's um, City Leadership Initiative, where he unites mayors from around the world. And we had a, a workshop on AI recently with all different mayors from all different countries. It was quite fascinating, to be honest, where you know I, I learned more in that hour and a half than I have done in the previous five years about AI. There is a massive productivity opportunity, isn't there? If you use it properly, save lots of uh, working hours, can't you? And I don't think it's something to be feared, is it, at all? Yeah, um, I wonder whether it's more, at the moment, more beneficial as to help deploying services to citizens than necessarily helping the workforce do the work, if you see what I mean, and, and that productivity change. I wonder whether you can deploy things via the technology. And building on that, Andy, I mean, I mean, one of the things Simon and I talk about a lot is, is that, you know, outside of work as consumers, right? Consumerization has changed the game. We lead now pretty autonomous experiences. You know, you open up an iPhone, there's no manual. You determine how you're going to use that capability and how you want to curate, if you like, how you live your life. And I'm, and, and I think Simon and I were really interested about how will the citizen want to behave going forward? 
in terms of accessing services? How can they maybe do more themselves rather than, you know, mm. knowledge management, I think in particular is going to be a massive area. How can I, you know, self-resolve? How, how, I, I don't want to call somebody. Will chat become a prevalent way of contact, for example? You know, because we know that AI in terms of conversational AI has been around for years and years and years, but it's enhancing, it's improving. So it's almost like trying to get a view of how will it bleed into public services and vice versa, how will it then take some of the strain, if you like, of the people who are working in those public services, dealing with those transactional queries? It's just a, it's a philosophical question, isn't it? It is. And, and I think we shouldn't fear it. Uh, that's the first thing I would say. I think we should absolutely face up to it. The, the question is maybe not going at it in a way that's going to further alienate the public because sometimes yeah. automated processes, I think people, you know, really are, their patience has been stretched with those, isn't it? So it's about identifying which bit of the process would everyone find it better to be to be done in a, in a more uh, automated, AI-generated way. Because there would be some of those things where, you know, it will just save everybody time and people would appreciate it. But there's other situations, you know, if I'm thinking of policing and 999 cause 101, you know, you, you have to be careful, I think, don't mm. you? I mean, it could be one of those things that further alienates the public and further, I don't know, you know, dehumanizes society. And and we've got to be got to be careful about that. But I think it's about understanding where it has a role and where where the limits of its role are. You know, if you're thinking about the mayor of New York was at the event I, I mentioned, and there there was a sort of AI-run uh, one-stop shop for business support where you just go in and you answer the, you ask questions and you just keep getting signposted. To, you know, and that, that seems to make sense, doesn't it? You know, for yeah. a service of that kind. Yeah. But it it wouldn't make sense, I don't think, for somebody you know, as I say, ringing our transport helpline or the or the police. I think you could easily alienate people if you're yeah. not you're not going to have a, you know, another human being on the end of the phone. We mentioned at the outset that change is constant. You know, standing still, not evolving, that's not really an option. But affecting change can also be very difficult, and especially so, I think, in management of stakeholders. Now, you know, you've already mentioned policing, education, transport. There are all, all these different de pulls and demands, as well as the expectation of the public themselves. How do you manage all those different stakeholders into a common vision and a common strategy for what Manchester needs to do? Yeah, so it's a really good question, actually, Simon. But I think that's the strength of English devolution as it's building through the big city regions at the moment, You know, coming at things from the bottom up. We can join the dots. We can make things make sense on the, on the ground. We can show how transport links to housing that we're building and you kind of take a place-based approach. And this is something that the Whitehall departments can't do. And I don't think they are set up to navigate the complexity of the 21st century. I, I actually think change is going to be more bottom-up driven. And so having bodies like the one I lead that is able to make sense of that change, to shape it, as I say, to join the dots between the different the different things, I, I think we've really got to um, move quickly to allow all parts of England to have a significant degree of devolution. And I also think that Scotland and Wales need to consider a form of city region or city locality uh, level devolution. Because, you know, I think the old top-down ways of the past are actually going to become a bigger and bigger problem if we don't, we don't recognise that. 
I'm smiling to myself there because <laughs> I'm wondering where that where you take that to. But I'm just going to draw in Michael into the conversation here because he had his uh, had a question. I think it was just about <laughs> that move quickly and agility and how you manage the perception of the public, for example, because a lot of people when they look at public services and this is where you're mixing up government with your locality, aligning stakeholders and moving at pace. When we ask this question in organizations, for example, we often will hear different priorities. Somebody doesn't feel the pain as which somebody else is. Somebody else is competing with the budget over there. I mean, you're, you know, you're saying today on the ground, we can join the dots, we can move at pace. Is that the reality, though? Because you have got different stakeholder groups, haven't you? There, there must be pressing priorities. We do, but I think you know it's it, it's an evolution. Of course, you know we're we're yeah. we're becoming more and more. I would say one system in Greater Manchester, and increasingly we're setting ourselves missions that are kind of shared between all of the public services. You know, you could take one, let's say, school readiness, so making sure all kids are ready for primary school when they arrive there. That's got to be a mission that's shared between local government, the health service. And you know other partners uh, as well. Or homelessness is another example where we've done a huge amount of work, and it absolutely yeah. is a partnership between all of the different agencies. It's kind of recognizing that you've got to move away from a world where what a thing is meant to be one organization's responsibility and them alone. I just don't think it ever worked particularly well, and it certainly no. won't work going forward into the twenty first uh, century. So, I think it is about rethinking the state. I am actually writing a book on this very issue with the mayor of the mayor of the Liverpool city region right now. And forgive the plug on the uh, Human Factor podcast, but uh, it will be in all good bookshops come February. It's called Head North, is what it's called, and it's about our decision to leave Westminster and kind of describe what we feel needs to be done to rewire the country to make it function in the twenty first century for everywhere. And it is about you know, it is about rewiring Westminster, but also taking as much power out of it as we can, yeah. And then putting it closer to the ground and letting people make, you know, m make more decisions for them for themselves. I think if we don't do that, I think the country will end up in a really bad. You know, we're not in the best of places right now, but I think it could get even worse as we go deeper into the twenty first century. And when is that available? When are you planning to hope you to publish that? February the twenty second. So we're Feb kind of excited about it okay. because it's it's kind of our it's half memoir, half manifesto. But Steve and I are kind of describing our journey. It begins on the day of Hillsborough when he was Steve was at Hillsborough and I was at the other semi final, and it, it was a period we'd lived through the eighties when the North had not been well treated, and then that happened, which brought all of those issues very much to home in a very personal way for both of us, given that I knew a lot of people at that, that match as well. Yeah. And kind of, he almost propelled us into politics, but then having got into politics at a national level, we not, not only did we not find a way of using levers to make things better for people in our part of the world, we actually saw how the whole system is wired against us and hence our decision to leave. So it's kind of, it's a bit of an epic story about our journey through all of that and coming face to face with some of the kind of, the attitudes, but also the sort of the structural blockages to, to the north of England being everything that it can be in the 21st century. So hopefully it will prompt some interest. Cheeky for me to ask, though, but would you ever be tempted to go back into government and be in a position to try and drive the change that you're because I love what you're saying. This is about systemic change. This yep. is about behaving differently. This is about yes. thinking differently. This is a wholly different mindset. Would you ever be tempted to go back into government to try and drive that? I get asked that a lot and people think 
I'm being sort of insincere when I say that I'm really loving being mayor of Greater Manchester and I'm not rushing back, but genuinely I I mean it. And I think Mm. in some ways the question, not so much the way you've asked it, but the way the media often ask it to me, almost sort of exposes the problem, which is they just think Westminster is the only show in town. And, And the more the country has that mentality, the more we will never break out of it and, you know, get to a sort of different vision for how the country could be run. So the book... It's called Head North, and it's kind of, it's obviously an invitation to do what we did, but it's also a sort of put your head in the north and sort of think about how do you wire a country that works for the north? That's what we're trying yes. to say. And, you know, you will read, if you do, do read it, you know, it's about a written constitution. It's about a German-style law requiring equivalent living standards across the whole of the country. It is about... I personally believe in proportional representation now for the commons because until every vote matters, every person in every place won't matter the same. You know, that's that's something that I've really come to strongly. But it is also then taking power out of a reformed uh, Westminster. So I feel what we're doing, or I'm doing at this moment in time, you could probably say typical politician answer because you've avoided the question. But, uh, um, <laughs> Not at all. It. I won't avoid it. Um I think what I'm doing now is a critically important thing. And we are, yes. Steve and I want to make devolution in England, as I say, irreversible. And I think it's getting close to that 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 yeah. point. But at some point, it's not soon, because I'm about to stand for a third term as mayor of Greater Manchester. But at some point, I could imagine going back, but it would only be, if I was working for somebody within a government situation, only be to implement some of the more substantial yeah. changes that I'm talking about. I wouldn't go back to do the same thing that I did before. Understood. Or indeed, if you're leading government, but let's wait and see. Um, one question on the piggyback of that, though, and I think this is really pertinent. We're in an era now where we need to listen. I think in, in organisations, we need to listen. We need to get the sentiment. You know, how are people feeling? You know, what does it feel? And to Simon's point earlier about what does it feel to belong you know, in a public service capacity, what does that feel like? And I think the way you were describing Gen Z and their willingness to give back, I think is really interesting. And I think we're seeing that. But also, how do you listen to the citizens? And the citizen has a voice. And I think it's a confusing time. What is your sort of views, if you like, from your position as the mayor, and you're talking to your different stakeholders, do you talk to them actively about two years, listening intently, having a real systemic approach to listening to what the issues are, maybe what the solutions are, having two-way feedback. Be really interested to get your thoughts on that. Well, we really do. We take that very seriously, Michael. We, you know, the, the buzzword is co-production, isn't it? But you can do yeah. that in a devolved system, particularly one like ours, where it's um, big enough to to matter, but not so big that we're unwieldy and it's you know remote. So we have, if you look at our structure, lots of panels that feed into our work a disabled people's panel, um, a race equality panel, right. faith and belief panel. You know, we very much are running a sort of a um, whole place approach to life, not just the public services, but every sector contributing, public, private, voluntary, faith, um, community. Yeah, That's actually the way you unlock the yes. potential of a place when you get everyone facing in the same direction and then everybody pulling in the same direction. That actually is what, moves things and changes things we for instance had a report done by the lancet on um health devolution in greater manchester and it found that we had 
made faster than expected progress on increasing life expectancy before the pandemic. And the, the, the effect was most pronounced in our more deprived communities. I think it was linked to the work we've done on homelessness and the redu reduction of deaths on the street. I think that's what moved it quite a lot. But it shows you that you can actually make a difference. And I'm very much pitching to the leader of the Labour Party and colleagues more generally in, in Parliament that actually the model of, de of devolution that Greater Manchester is pioneering is probably the best way in an era of constrained resources to get the best results for the public, yes. where you do join the dots between, you do break down the silos between the d departments, you do a whole person, whole place approach. And that actually is, is the if they're talking about reform, don't come up with a 1997 version of reform, which is about yeah. internal targets and driving people harder and harder from the top down. Come up with a bottom-up version of reform, which is about unlocking the the contribution of different sectors, a whole place approach. So you mentioned the election. Uh, you know, we're in an election year. That, that that presents challenges to you, and I do wish you the best of luck in, in that forthcoming election. But in your role, how do you manage the requirement to be fit for the future against the backdrop of this potential for political change that's going on there? And that might be change yeah, in Whitehall. It might be change in Manchester. It might be both. How do we ensure that the citizens get the continuity for the ideas that you've started? It's a really good question in a sort of challenging political climate, mm. you know, where life is more polarised than it was before. And the, the pandemic has left a sort of a febrile climate, I think, from a political point of view in its, in its wake. I think it is about being completely focused on what matters and demonstrating to the public the change. I think the, the, the great British public, and they are great British public, because they're understanding, they can see, I think, if you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to make make things happen, I think what they get frustrated with is the goldfish mentality of Westminster, where you know it's all about one thing, like like you know last week the post office scandal, you know ignores it for ages, and oh my goodness, we're we're all over. It. But then they go on to something else, and nothing yeah. actually changes, does it? And it just yeah. you get this sort of like you get this sort of very superficial approach to politics, where they're kind of all over one thing, but then they've jumped, and it's kind of almost the following social media and the impulses you see on social media. I've been a bore. I've been a bus nerd in my second term as, as mayor of Greater Manchester, as anybody who lives here knows. But it is about old-fashioned, relentless focus and delivery, isn't it? Delivery. Yes. I, I don't see that in the same way anymore. You know, focus on something and fix it and deliver it. So I introduced a £2 cap on bus fares. That helped. But I have taken the difficult thing of re-regulating buses, and we've you know we've done that. We've got the next phase of it coming on the 24th of March. So the north of Greater Manchester, Oldham, Rochdale, Berry, we'll see yellow buses appear everywhere. And yeah. then we'll complete it a year from now in the south of the city region. I think there's something about staying the course, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Being focused, yeah. not splitting around. And, and I try to do that. And I think Greater Manchester responds well to that because... You know, it, it get it can see what you're trying to do, and therefore is willing to sort of give you the space and the time to do it. Yeah, I think as you mentioned, those connecting the dots. If if people can see those dots being connected, that they buy into it much more than as you say, there's this this thing, then this thing, this this, and it's just sort of hopping around different topics. Absolutely. Well, I you know, I I just think at, at a national level, you know, the the focus on delivery has kind of gone really. I mean, I 
Yes. You know, when we when we were in government, I'm not saying everything was perfect then, but when it came to the NHS, there was a relentless focus on making it where it should be in terms of, you know, waiting time standards. And yeah, it, it just doesn't seem to me that there's the same level of focus on delivering change. You know, I mentioned the railways a couple of times. I mean, where has the focus been on that? You know, the, the, the poor standard of railways really ruins people's lives. And yet yes. I don't see anyone saying, right, roll my sleeves up. I'm going to sort this out. It's like just rumbles on and on and on. And I think the public getting very frustrated with that. Now, we're very conscious of your time. So one last yes. question, if we may. And it's one we, we do in, at the end of every podcast. And that's around uh, sort of tapping into your experience, your wisdom, bits of advice you might offer to people. So you know, what would be those biggest tips that you would offer to others around building and then just retaining that progressive but inclusive culture from Manchester? Well, everyone has different styles, don't they? And, you know, I, I can only describe uh, mine. When I was in Westminster, I used to hear like a clever clogs phrase that people would use all the time, under promise and over deliver. I used to hear, <laughs> hear people say that, but that isn't my philosophy at all. You know, who, who got inspired by an under promise, you know, a sort of weak, sort of small commitment. I think you should, if anything, I'm not necessarily saying over-promise, but I'm certainly saying be ambitious in, yes. in your vision. You know, inspire people, give people some hope, you know, give people something that's worth working for. And I've tried to do that in Greater Manchester. I've tried to set big ambitions for for where we can go in the in the future. And I personally feel that unlocks positivity, it unlocks buy-in from people. Mm. And I like to think that Greater Manchester is benefiting from from that now we said we would be the uk's leading digital city region and i you know i think there we're there or thereabouts now we said we'd be the uk's leading green city region we've got a science-based target for a net zero city region by 2038 and you know we're, we're showing some real leadership on on that front uh, we are growing faster than the uk economy so something is happening that's good but then the converse of of that about you know i think leaders do need to you know inspire people gives people some hope but at the same time don't ask anything of people that you're not prepared to do yourself. And I'm a big believer in walking in other people's shoes, understanding pe things from every level. And, you know, when it comes to something like homelessness, for instance, I've donated 15% of my own salary to a bed every night since I got elected as mayor seven years ago. I've done it every single month because I'm not going to ask anyone to help us if I'm not demonstrably doing it myself. And I think... That is something I would recommend to people at any level of any organization in any form of leadership role. You know, increasingly there's a feeling that kind of people, the people higher up that they go in organizations are, are not prepared to do that. They, you know, they talk one thing, but then they do a very different thing. And I, I think Greater Manchester anyway would not accept that. It requires people to yeah. be rooted. The, the B is the symbol of the city and the city region for a good reason. And that reason being, no one is more important than anyone else here. Yeah, we're all in that world, buzzing around, trying to help each other. And, um, you know, you, you've got to you kind of lead in a way that's true to the place. And that's what I try and do. You know, you've got to be authentic in the place and, and, and working to its values and going with the grain of the place. You know, I say that that's my style. I mean, others will, will see things differently. But I like to think that we've built something powerful here in Greater Manchester and and we'll see where it goes next.
Andy, Brilliant. I love that advice. Thank you for that. Brilliant. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your time. We, we've loved well, listening to the conversation with you. Uh, we'll do a we'll do a final plug for February the twenty second. Head uh, north. I, I Look, feel bad now coming on and then giving you the not the, at the all, hard, the hard not stuff. at all. Head north, I'm, but I think head north might just catch a moment and a, and a mood. I think. I think, as uh, yes. Michael said, I think people are saying, "Hang on, more of the same isn't good enough here because more of the same is taking us backwards at the moment." No, I love awesome. it. I'm, I'm certainly going to be ordering my copy as soon as we finish recording here. <laughs> so you. thank you for being with us. Thank you for taking your time to to have this conversation with us. And we very much appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. And great to have the opportunity to come on. Many revealing answers in that conversation there. Um, even just the little bits like, uh, you know, donating part of his salary to, to homeless trusts and charities. I thought that was that was a, a wonderful insight and, and not something that everybody knows as general knowledge. Uh, I'm going to come to you first, Michael, for your reflections on that conversation. I, listen, I completely agree. And I think it's worth just mentioning, Simon, isn't it, that we were super keen to have Andy as a guest. We were looking for a real insight into the public sector and the service provision and what it means today and to the citizens. So it did take a while to have this conversation. He's, a, he's an extremely busy man. But yeah, you're right. There were so many different insights. There were three, I think, that I uh, that I wanted to pick out. Um, I think the biggest one of all uh, was, for me, centred around that there has to be a different way of thinking and a different way of working. I mean, I think he was quite adamant that the way that government operates today just does not work. And he doesn't want to repeat that. And he's almost creating a template in Manchester for how he sees government potentially tackling issues going forward. I think the second one, and this is almost stating the bleeding obvious, but the way he said, focus on delivery. If you're going to start something, finish it. You know, you may not be able to do everything, but what you do start, finish it. And what they're doing with the, obviously the uh, the bus network and, um, and and some of those things. And then the last one, was that recognition that we are in a changing context. And there was two aspects, wasn't there? Are there skill shortages? Yes. Are there difficult positions to fill? Yes. But they're doing something about it. They're looking at learning pathways in a very different way and not just relying on the university programs. But you asked the question about, does the new generation see a life in public service? And he was very clear, you know, talking to his own family and his, his daughters that, there is a desire to give back. There's a desire to protect what we have. And so he sees that there is a greater commitment at the moment to serve. So some really fascinating insights from a person of pretty decent seniority and a really decent lens, right? So it was very enlightening and refreshing. How about you, sir? Well, I loved the summary part, especially. You know, when he tried to you know, just take a step back and, and think about the advice he was giving other people because what we heard, I think, was a lot of common traits that we've heard in other conversations. But I think it was still good to hear those, uh, you know, and effectively when you're hearing from a public servant, be authentic, you know, make sure that the dots are connected for people rather than, you know, tackling things in single instances. It's make sure you connect them together. And I think one of the, the biggest challenges he has is not only is he managing a workforce, he's also managing the expectations of the population uh, of Greater Manchester. So he's got multiple stakeholders to, to sort of corral together in being authentic and, and connecting those dots. 
you know, he's not only got to tap into the culture of his workforce, but he's got to tap into the culture of the city. It's, it's a, not a unique position because there's mayor of Greater London as well, but it's an, it's not a common position. And, you know, that, I think, has its own nuances and its own challenges. It was great to hear about the education initiative. You know, that, that was, to be fair, and to be honest, that was news to me. And it was great to hear about it. And it was great to hear his opinions about that the young workforce entering into public service and wanting to give back. And going back to what you said about joining the dots and connecting the dots, he was very clear, wasn't he, to say that this is not top-down, this is bottom-up. And interestingly, breaking the silo thinking of, well, that problem is yours. No, it's a problem shared. And he talked about missions, didn't he? And I think that, again, is really interesting, um, that they're really trying to avoid the mistakes of the past with, you know, very tunnel-visioned, siloed ways of thinking. Yeah, the education was a surprise, wasn't it? But you know what I think will be really interesting, and you mentioned there about the position, is the book that he's got coming out. Head North, wasn't it, coming out yeah. sort of in February 22nd? be a great read, I think. I'm certainly going to look out for that. And uh, it'll just be interesting to see, you know, how he approaches that and, and what he covers in there. Because I think that, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. Mm. I thought it came across as very articulate. I thought, yeah, I loved the, the conversation that we had. Mm. Um, I'll be honest, yeah, I was a little tr- nervous. Yeah, we have a politician coming onto the podcast. I didn't want it to go too political in there. I didn't want to offend anybody with any uh, political viewpoints in there. But I thought we had a really great conversation that was yeah. grounded in reality. I agree completely. So I think posthumous thanks to to Andy for for giving his time and sharing his time and his insights. And uh, I think now it's probably off to have that that cup of tea that's been, you know, the kettle's on. Let's have that cup of tea and reflect, you know, after the the podcast is finished. Yeah. Uh, If you like the episode, of course, we've got it available on various channels. Do like and subscribe so you get those notifications of upcoming future episodes. And keep an eye out on our LinkedIn social media posts as well. And until then, goodbye. Mm -hmm.